You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like a glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Do you want to use your skills to serve movements for social justice? Join a team of designers and developers who are also activists, organizers, cultural workers, artists, and musicians, and become a part of their fast-paced, mission-driven shop. Design Action Collective, a worker-owned design and communication studio in downtown Oakland, California, is seeking applicants for the following positions, web developer, web designer, information architect, and project manager. They're committed to providing high-quality visual communications tools to progressive, nonprofit, and grassroots activist organizations, and they're majority non-cis male and people of color owned. For more information, visit their site at designation.org. That's D-E-I-S-I-G-N-A-T-I-O-N dot O-R-G. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Kendall House, a senior marketing designer at Red Hat who is currently based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Kendall Boo Boo House. I am a marketing designer for Red Hat. And I've been designing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> How did you uh, get started at Red Hat? Like, what does your regular kind of day-to-day look like there? Uh, so I'm on a, a really fantastic team that was called Creative Strategy and Design, but we've just absorbed the brand team as well. So now I think it's, I think now it's brand and creative, um, but it's a team of about 30 to 40 people, um, including graphic designers, animators, filmmakers, 3D illustrators. It's really a dynamic team. And within that team, I do a lot of graphic design, digital graphic design and illustration for everything from web assets to print assets to our major annual trade show uh, conference called Red Hat Summit where we do we cater to about 8000 attendees and do a full immersive uh, 3 day experience with that so it's it's there's a lot of variety to the work which i really appreciate and now before that you were at at CoreOS which got acquired by Red Hat is that right yeah yeah at, at CoreOS i was hired on i, I was employee uh, in the 60s 
Um, I was the third designer at that time. The design team was doing all of the marketing design and all the product design. Mm. Uh, so it was a software company, one of the first companies in the Kubernetes space. And so we were doing everything from uh, social media ads to uh, conference booth work, but also doing um, the user interface for the actual product. After a little while, we ended up splitting the design team into marketing and product where I then became the sole marketing designer. I was supposed to build the team, but we ended up doing a hiring freeze because unbeknownst to me, we were in the process of being acquired. When that happens, you stop spending money. And so I then spent the final year of CoreOS as the only person doing all marketing and sales uh, design. But that led to us being acquired by Red Hat, me being acquired by Red Hat. And then about... Eight months later, Red Hat got acquired by IBM. So it's a lot of oh, wow. a lot of uh, little fish being eaten by bigger fish. Yeah, has there been a big shift in the work or the work culture since the acquisition? Um, there has. Um, so CoreOS was a really small startup. I think in the end we had 130 employees after four years. Very San Francisco, very um, venture capital, uh, uh, Y Combinator, a lot of hoodies. Young, really young too. Most of the employees, I would say, were under the age of 30. Mm -hmm. And when we were acquired by Red Hat, Red Hat had been around for 25 years. Red Hat is based in Raleigh, North Carolina, so opposite coast, and was like 13,000 people. And so, big cultural shift. And when we were acquired, as often happens, the majority of the original employees within the first year left Mm. for other opportunities. And so, there was a massive shift of culture, not not for the worse in any way. I mean, there's, I think, appeal to a lot of people, the idea of working in a startup. But the thing about startups is it's very touch and go. It's very insecure. Mm. Whereas a big company, I mean, like a startup, you don't have HR until you have to have HR, right? Where, <laughs> where uh, a big company like Red Hat has worked a lot of this stuff out literally decades ago. And so yeah. it's a much more secure environment. It's a much more fully realized idea going from being a team of one to being on a team of 30. I'm someone who much prefers to work on a team. I'm really inspired by the work that other people do. I also really like contributing as much as I like uh, creating. And so for me, it was amazing to suddenly be on this big creative team and culture change. Yes. For the worst. No. Definitely not. Okay. And now as I was doing, you know, my research about Red Hat, I saw they have, it's funny that you mentioned this about, you know, these larger companies having it all worked out. They have a whole nine page white paper that addresses culture, diversity and inclusion at the company. And uh, in that paper, they talk about one of their five main DNI communities. Uh, one of them's called Build, which is uh, acronym for Blacks United in Leadership and Diversity. Now, you you co-lead this this group. Is that right? I do. Yep. So employee resource groups are, I think, a really important thing. Um, and when I was at CoreOS, um, I had co-founded Blacks at CoreOS, which was our Black employee resource group. There were three of us. Um, we all worked on different teams and didn't even live in the same cities. Um, <laughs> but just just having that, um, the being afforded the space and the resources to come together and advocate for ourselves and our community, 
um, was really important. So when we were acquired by Red Hat, that was the first thing I looked into. Um, there was some trepidation for me being in the Bay Area, living in Oakland, living in, you know, walking down the same streets as the founders of the Black Panther Party. Like that, that spirit is still very alive in Oakland. And so being acquired by um, a company out of, out of the South was for me, uh, pretty intimidating, or, or I just didn't know what to expect. And so that was yeah. the first thing that I did was try to see if they had a black employee resource group. And that's how I found Build. And Build, as I understand it, was Red Hat's first ERG. It's kind of the pilot program. And it started organically, where a few brothers who were uh, software engineers started getting together unofficially and had their own IRC chat or, or some such. And at a certain point, and I don't know exactly how it developed, they were able to approach someone in the company and say, you know, we think that this is something that Red Hat should be supporting officially. This should be open to not just black employees, but also allies as well, and should have some executive sponsorship. And so it's it's great to be a part of this ERG because it is the most established at the company. I think it's about three years in, but it's also it's the pilot program. So we're the ones who... There's a lot more pressure, I would say, on us, but we are the ones who are forging the way for all of the other employee resource groups. I mean, now, like you said, we have five. Um, we have a queer employee resource group, which is hugely supported. Uh, we have one for veterans, one for indigenous people. I don't know if we have a Latinx one. I don't know, but um, all of which is to say, like, it's great to see that this is a movement. The employee resource group movement is something that's growing. And my trepidation about working for this Southern company has shifted severely because this ERG is really, really well funded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about sort of what is the, the nexus point in a company where they decide that they want to do this. Because you said when you started it, you know, CoreOS was a small company. Build was initially just three people. Um, do you think that there is a certain time when a startup should be taking this kind of thing into consideration when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Yeah. I mean, especially for startups day one, I mean, it should be, it should be a part of the culture. You know, we talk about diversity is something that tech companies and people who work in computation find really appealing because it's really quantifiable. I mean, it's, it's easy to say we have X number of, said group yeah inclusion is the hard part because it's it's not measurable it's not quantifiable and it's not visible to the people who aren't a member of the marginalized group that's being included or excluded so my white manager can't know if i feel included or not i mean unless mm. unless she asks me right and yeah. so the i think when the the dni big push was happening in san francisco five years ago the focus is really on diversity and, and hitting numbers, but not about shifting culture in any way. And so that's a top-down decision, and which means it's a lot of cis, straight, white men just filling their numbers. And that proved to be ineffective. With employee resource groups, what you're doing as a company is you are giving the people who are the marginalized group the resources to be able to advocate for themselves. And we know through community building going back a hundred years. That's the best way but to say, you know what? I don't know what say, you know, a woman from El Salvador needs 
to feel welcome and included in an environment, why don't I give her the tools and the resources to be able to start advocating for herself? Um, mm-hmm. And in that way, we like we can build a more positive and inclusive culture because then the ERGs too will work together. So there's five ERGs at Red Hat, but we're constantly working with each other as well. So not only are we learning how to advocate for ourselves, but we're also learning what our colleagues who are of another marginalized group also need. And so I think that when you're forming an organization, whether it be a startup, whether it be a meetup group, whether it be a Slack channel, anything like that, you should be thinking that as early on as possible, like day mm-hmm. one for sure. And yeah, and honestly, if I think if you start a company, your first black employee, be like, hey, <laughs> do you want to have an employee resource group? Do you want to like what what do you envision might be helpful for you? Like, how can we? open the door to more people like you so that we can have true diversity mm. and have people feel welcome being here. It feels like there's been a shift uh, with that. Cause I remember you, you're talking about five years ago. I know that a lot of the language around then was about sort of not putting the onus, I guess on the employee in a way to kind of do the DNI work that it should be a top down kind of thing, which I, I still agree that it, it should be, but now it seems like putting those resources in the hands of employees is a is a safer bet. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. There, I don't know about you, but I, as a black person, have definitely been in a lot of situations where it's been like kind of shoved into my lap. Where it's like, well, uh, I don't know. You figure it out. And it's a lot of unpaid hours. It's a lot of unsupported work. Yeah, yeah. You know, like where maybe the chief of operations is saying, do this, but your direct report manager is like, well, you don't have time to do this. I think the key to a, to a good DNI is executive sponsorship. It has to be supported at the highest ranks so that your manager can't tell you that you can't work on it. Your manager can't, you know, your, your PM has to like pencil in time because it has to, the company has to show from the, the top tier that it's, deeply dedicated to this work. It can't be leaving an individual or a small group of people to seem rogue, to seem, for lack of a better term, special needs. That isn't the case. Mm. The, the executive leadership has to say, no, this is a part of the core tenant of this organization, of this community that we are building, uh, including our customers. Like All of this is, is core to our values. And so we are going to put in the time, the money, the resources to make sure that this happens. Now, one interesting thing that happens, and a lot of companies, is the executives are still straight cis white men. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know of a single ERG, mm, actually, I, I probably know a couple, but the vast majority of the ones I know of, including my black employee resource group, it's technically led by a white man um, because our executive sponsor is a white guy. Now, hmm. I could see situations where that can be problematic, but in our case, it's actually great because here's an opportunity where I know that there are people, I mean, at this point, there have been so many leaked Google memos uh, that we know that there are, are people who aren't a part of these groups that are really taking offense and that are really yeah. having an issue with the fact that these groups just don't understand the value and the necessity of these groups. And so to have someone like them 
saying, well, look, like it, it's, I'm okay with it. Not only am I okay with it, I sign off on it. I support it. I'm facilitating this thing. I think that that representation is really important as well. Yeah. Five years ago, to that point you said earlier, there were a lot of these really big tech companies, Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, that were all about, yes, we're going to put our numbers out there and we're going to try to bring in more, you know, more people of color to diversify our workforce. And I think all of these companies have certainly had great business success, like Microsoft bought LinkedIn and GitHub. Facebook doubled their monthly active users. Like they've had all this business success, but then when it comes down to diversifying their workforces, the, the percentages are still single digit, like plus or minus rises or, or falls. And you would think that if you put all of that money and resources into this, if after five years you didn't get anywhere, you would think that someone probably wouldn't have a job. Like it doesn't seem like there's, any consequence for not diversifying. And I, I even know in some circles, I mean, this, this conversation I think was coming up a lot last year where uh, people, mostly white people were like vocally being like, I'm tired of hearing about DNI. Mm. Like, like, <laughs> like, Oh, how convenient, you know, <laughs> like I'm tired of hearing about diversity. Like, Oh, that's, that's nice. Um, but the, the inclusion part is I, I like that part where you said that, uh, diversity is quantifiable inclusion is not right because it's all about once you have those diverse hires in the door and they're working for you how do you keep them like what does that uh attrition data look like once you've brought these people on so it, it seems like it's it's probably falling in a lot of a lot of these companies i think too that a lot of these companies like imagine being on a product team where you you're shipping constantly and things you know, you're, you're working in scrum, you're doing these three week sprints. Like there are, are real milestones that you're hitting constantly. Right. And everything is deadline driven, but then you have this vague thing called DNI that doesn't have a goal, like not a clearly stated goal. It doesn't have a, a established timeline. It doesn't, it's just this vague thing that a lot of people, there's so much eye rolling of, of, uh, majority group people and minority group people, I really just be like, ah, like, oh yeah, I went to your website. It looks like you have one black employee, but you made sure that you know she's in every single photo. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that, I roll, and I think that I mean, I I blame the leadership. I blame the lack of direction. Like, I I have not been in the boardrooms where it was decided that a lot of these companies was going to focus on diversity and inclusion and really diversity to be honest like no one was talking about inclusion yeah I, I don't know exactly what prompted it but there were these things that were happening these scandals that kept hitting the news that were terrifying people um uber was the mm. first one that i remember being really big google i think was next and so there's that oh we have to do something about it but I, there are all of these stories and things i experienced myself where maybe somebody comes in and gives a slideshow that says like it's really tough to be a woman in the workplace. And like, <laughs> and then, okay, what do you do? One company I worked at, they just set up a Slack channel called Diversity, but there were no, like, <laughs> real. And, and there were no guidelines. There was no mediator. There was no expert. There was no, there was nothing. And so there were some horror shows of that occurred. And then there was just a lot of like really well-meaning people 
really hungry for solutions wanting you know i mean like straight white guys who were like how do i help how do i advocate how do i how do i become an ally mm-hmm. and and there was no one there and no system in place to help guide them so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all that there are people eye rolling or going like i remember one time standing up in front of the company at the monday morning you know uh, all hands check in and my colleague and I, who is a, a wonderful designer, uh, she and I got up and we're kind of giving a DNI presentation. And this is pretty early on in my DNI uh, work journey. And I just remember one of the one of the uh, engineers just customer support. So he's a, a problem solver. He's solutions oriented. Says, "Well, well, how many black people should we have?" <laughs> I was like, "Uh, uh don't." No, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. He, he wanted yeah. to know what the goal was. And I was, I was so at the beginning being like, oh, we need to open the doors. But he was asking to what ends. And I think that if people, mm-hmm. if solutions based people don't, aren't given a goal, then it's nothing. It's nothing. I mean, I can just sit in, in the ephemera of just, you know, uh, it's just, it can just hover in the atmosphere and just, it just never be taken seriously because there's nothing to solve against. You're not trying to beat anything, beat a deadline, beat a quota. It's just, it means nothing. And when you take a lot of these companies where their mission statements would be so vague or, or, you know, fluffy, where it's like, you know, like change the world with, with positive influence, like you're just a grocery delivery app. Like how about just how about your mission statement? <laughs> Get groceries to people efficiently, you know. Like, so when you already have th- these vague notions, um, I think a lot of people just think of it as like marketing speak, or think of it as just like it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder. Certainly, I think as we're going now into uh, a lot of companies starting to partner with other organizations, or like I know Google most famously. Uh, I think it was back in maybe 2015, 2016, they did like this partnership with Howard where there's Howard West out at Google's campus. And so some of the freshmen from, I think, the computer science department were able to go there and learn and study from Google engineers. I'm interested to see how some of these programs will sort of, I don't know, what what the dividends are from some of them, because a lot of them I feel like are certainly been started in the wake of these sort of horrible numbers that are coming out with workplace uh, percentages of diversity. Mm. Uh, But then, like you say, there's also these horror stories of people that have worked there and then it goes South and it's in tech crunch. It's in mashable. It's in USA today. Like you're hearing about it. And I, I don't know really how much of an effect that has on hiring. Like for some of these companies, I like, to be honest, I think Facebook probably might be one of them. Like they might just brush it off. Like, oh, okay, what's next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the reality is around here, at least. I don't think that there are people of color or queer people or queer women of color. I don't think that they're turning down jobs at Google because they've heard it's a toxic culture. I'm sure that there are some, hmm. but the reality, as I see it is that there's been, you know, the, the pipeline argument has just has been around forever. And it's, I'm of the opinion that it's been disproven over and over and over again. People hire themselves in, in one way or another so frequently. They, yeah. they want to hire from the, the program they went to in school because they know those professors. They know 
what's being taught. They know what the challenges are and they know what the results are, or they're hiring from the, the company that they worked for last. Like, you know, what was the team they were on at the last company? Well, they're going to poach whoever they can. They're establishing their own pipelines the whole time. And so I think that to really have a diverse enough space that diversity no longer is even a topic you have to fundamentally change. You have to break up the pipelines. And so it's going to happen on a lot of different fronts. And it's going to happen at every single level uh, from the individual contributor all the way up to the CEO. Like everybody should be in one way or another focused on it in order for it to work in any sort of timely fashion. And so some of these programs, like working with Howard, yes. Um, I love that about Build at Red Hat. Like they're in, down south, they're in North Carolina. They like are in HBCU, yeah. like heaven, right? And so there's so much outreach going on in partnership with the local local HBCUs. That is how we change pipeline. A thing that I was working on at CoreOS, we were acquired before I was able to realize it, but our intern program was building, building, building. It was getting bigger and bigger. It was all from the same university or one of three universities. It was where the CEO and CTO went together, mm. where the, where the um, head of one of the engineering teams went himself. He went to Rochester. They went to Oregon or Stanford. That was it. <laughs> and it doesn't get more homogenous than that. I mean, so we were just getting like 17, 18 of these interns in and they all were, they all knew each other. They're all the same. But we're in the Bay Area where there's this crisis where the tech industry is eating up everything. And you have an area that had such great black representation, Latinx representation, Chinese and other East Asian and Asian Pacific Island representation. Yet none of these people are working in what's becoming the only industry in town. <clears throat> when I was a kid, especially like immigrant parents, black parents, uh, would be like, oh, you got to grow up and be a doctor or you got to grow up and be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, you got to learn to code. Yeah. But it's not a generational thing because most of these people, it's not like their parents had been doing this stuff. It's not like their parents were building websites in the 60s. Like that, the industry, the way we know it, didn't exist. And so here they are trucking in all of these interns from all of these places. Meanwhile, at their feet, literally, like on the ground floor of the building, is a cafe full of people from the neighborhood, from the area that are working there with absolutely no access. So that's when I was pushing to try to partner with some of the local colleges, of which there are many, and try to get a pipeline built in. And so it's like, all right, for every two Rochester kids you bring in, bring in one from Oakland, bring in one from Berkeley, like bring in just one because the there's no reason to believe that your own path that you've taken, your own experience is the only legitimate one or the best one. And it's that type of thinking that really limits the opportunities for others. So will working with Howard make the company better? I don't know. But is it a good idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I support yeah. it. And, and these programs shouldn't be left to stand on their own. They should be a part of a fully supported fully fronted i guess war on homogeny wow that sounded really dark <laughs> <laughs> i feel where you're coming but, from though like you have to be able to utilize those resources if you want to make that change absolutely yeah and and like it's wild to me that like 
HBCUs aren't even being talked about around here or, or women's colleges. Like it's not, it's like, Oh, well, mm, yeah, I just wish there were more black people at Stanford. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I wish that too, but there are lots of other colleges to look at. You know, you just, you got to go out, you know, you gotta, you gotta put in the work of, of finding people. Mm-hmm. I remember doing some consulting with, uh, I think this was with Vox back in like 2015. And I had just made mention like, oh, well, have you all done anything at Howard? And it was like, you could see people's minds explode. Like, we never thought of that. I'm like, really? It's it's not that far from y'all. Like, you're headquartered in D.C. Like, it's not that far. Like, go to a career fair. Talk to some people. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, just to kind of, you know, switch gears a, l- a little bit here, because you mentioned, um, you know, mentioned the Bay Area. Did you, did you grow up in the Bay Area? No. Uh, so I lived in, I grew up in Boston, in okay. and around Boston. And I moved to the Bay Area 11 years ago. It was uh, 2008. I moved to the Bay Area. Okay. So growing up in and around Boston, like, were, were you exposed to art and design kind of, in your childhood? Uh, I was. So I was raised a musician and my brother, who is a couple years older than me, um, is a phenomenal illustrator. He, he was that kid that was a little like, uh, he was shy. And so he'd be in the corner with a, a pen and a sketchbook at all times. And now he's, um, really kicking off his career as an illustrator, but he's just unbelievable. And so I was always he was my older brother, my hero. I was very influenced by what he was doing. And probably I started going to shows when I was like 11, uh, joined my first band when I was 12. And at that time, this is 1991, we were broke. Everyone that I knew that was from the area was just, we were just poor kids. And so when we were starting our first bands, somebody had to make a t-shirt. Somebody had to design the tape cover. Somebody had to make the flyer and being influenced by my brother um, and being kind of aesthetic minded. I was oftentimes the person who was doing it and I loved doing it. And so I was doing it for myself at 12, 13, 14. And then other bands started asking me to do designs for them and then record labels and tour managers started having me do posters and t-shirts and record covers for them. And so that kind of kicked off design as a hobby slash passion for me for years. Um, But I didn't have, by my estimation, I didn't have access to college. Mm. And so this was a side thing that I did for a long time for about 20 years, 15 years, something like that. Um, And it just, it went from then bands, labels, tour managers, to then small brands, coffee shops, tea brands, things like that. And then um, I just found that I was getting more and more into it and then and just devouring whatever books I could read on the topic. Whenever I met a person who was practicing design or was also interested in design, it just it really like blossomed for me into really an obsession. And then I hit the point where I was tired of being a barista slash bouncer slash bike messenger slash uh, chef um, mm-hmm. and just really wanted to focus on the design. But for me, I was, a, I was a pretty late comer. It wasn't until my mid-20s where I was able to focus on design directly and went to school and, and 
was able to refine my craft. Nice. It's interesting how I think a lot of designers tend to get into this through music in some sort of way. Um, I was actually, I interviewed uh, Erica Lewis. We're all in the same Slack Slack group. Mm. Uh, so I interviewed Erica Lewis and she's a jazz singer. Oh. And she was talking about how she got into doing design through like being exposed to like posters and album covers and stuff like that. Uh, and it got me to thinking actually about this, uh, you know, as we're sort of talking about design a little bit here, how websites have all started to kind of look the same. I heard this in a, in a podcast from Adobe. They have this podcast called Wireframe. Mm-hmm. And so with the latest episodes, they were like, oh, you know, all websites are looking the same with the, the rectangular hero image and the parallax scrolling and how in the early days of design, like in the, I don't know, late 90s, 2000s, et cetera, probably a little earlier than that a lot of design was very free form mm-hmm. because you, you got on the web and you realized you couldn't make anything. A lot of that stuff, at least from what I remember, you know, back in the old days of table-based design, you basically made something in Photoshop and you exported it in slices and it came in these tables and you uploaded it and like that was your website. And you could really kind of go wild with how it looked because you weren't, I guess you weren't really designing so strictly within the concept of a grid, even though that's what tables are, right? you were able to kind of be a little bit more freeform. But now that everyone is kind of speaking the same design language through, you know, I would say boot camps and education and just the way companies are now taking design more seriously. Now everything is starting to kind of look the same. It's, which is a, it's an odd concept when you think about it, because I would say digital graphic design is still a fairly new a new thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, especially compared to poster design, for instance. But yeah. I think, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm of the last generation of, of like the LP, mm-hmm. where as a kid, you, you know, I would get a record and put it on and this, you know, 12, 12 and a half by 12 and a half thing, sometimes with a poster inside, I would just sit there for hours and hours and hours looking at this art and looking for the Easter eggs. And um, it was okay for there to be hidden elements. It was okay for there to not be like immediate comprehension that you could have like, you know, um, you could have a period of your brain trying to unlock the message. And I think early days of web were very much about that. I think there was this idea of personal expression, much like jazz poster art, for instance, where you could break rules or bend rules at least. And that was really exciting for designers. Mm-hmm. I think a big difference is it's not necessarily as exciting for the viewer <laughs> uh, on the web because we're, I think that most of the web we're using very differently than poster art or LP art. And I think that, you know, when, when I talk with newer designers, I think that I spend a lot of time trying to talk about separating the ego from the work because you're not designing for yourself and it's not necessarily representative of your personality. You're trying, you're aiming for clarity. You're aiming for accessibility. You want, you have a client that has, a message, a point of, of communication. And so you want it to be clear. You don't want the, the brain to have that time of trying to decipher the message. You want it to be right up front. And so it makes sense to me, though I know that for some creative people, it's a real bummer that like 
that the space looks so, I guess, kind of prefab. But from an accessibility point of view, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think that that's where the web is maturing in so many ways, where it's not just, you know, early days of web was just backend engineers that knew HTML and, and putting things up. And a lot of it is just, oh, it's just good enough. Or, oh, you can read this. But it's like, oh, really? You did like yellow type on a black background. Like, okay, like that's not necessarily the, the best answer. Mm-hmm. And so as much as I bemoan the lack of creativity, I applaud the increase in accessibility and more understanding that there are just so many different types of people that are trying to get the information that meeting them where they're at makes sense. Now, because of that is why I design professionally, but then I do my poster item stuff on the side because it's when I'm designing, I'm not designing for myself. But when I'm doing my poster art or, or my own band's work, that gets to be completely my ego. That gets to be my complete expression of my own personality. And I get to keep the two separated, which I think is important. Now, when you were, you know, deciding to do this professionally, you know, you said you kind of came into it in your mid-20s. Was your, was your family supportive of you going into this route? Yeah, totally. In fact, uh, my stepdad is uh, a graphic designer himself. He runs Anchorball Studios. Uh, and he was a great resource oh, nice. for me too. Yeah, he. I was in like my first couple of years. I did a lot of freelance work with him, and so really helped me learn about that separation. Really helped me learn the difference between designing a punk flyer and expressing myself and my subculture, and and speaking in an insular fashion where I'm, I'm speaking to an existing audience, as opposed to something on a much broader platform where I'm trying to attract new audience and I'm trying to attract as many people as possible. So. That was huge for me, huge for me. And then again, my brother is an illustrator. We, we definitely have blue-collar upbringings, and, and my brother actually has only gotten to start his career very recently. Uh, he's a, a decorative plasterer for 20-something years, and now he's getting to focus on illustration. So my family, I've been really, really fortunate. It's a small family, but a very supportive family. What was your early career like? Like This is you know pre-Red Hat, pre-Core OS, what was that early design career like when you look back at it? Hungry, scrappy, desperate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I started off freelance. My goal was to eventually get into an agency was my hope. Um, and so I was, you know, um, by crook or by crux, I was just trying to find freelance clients. And so I was fortunate to do uh, work with Anchorball. And that was probably 20% of what I was doing. And I was just out there handing out business cards, shaking hands, meeting people. I I remember I played, uh, my band played a show or played a, a festival in Oklahoma City where I met a woman who, like, we ended up at the airport going our separate ways. And she mm-hmm. was like, oh, well, I, I run um, a, like a, a, a demand generation or I work for a demand gen company. We're always looking for design. And next thing I know, I'm now, it's 20% of my work now is doing design for her. Like it was anywhere I could find somebody that was willing to, to pay. And I did that for years. I did that for years and it was hungry work, uh, especially November, December, a lot of companies so that they can uh, post fourth quarter gains. Mm -hmm. One of their tools is they just don't pay any money out. 
And so you can be doing 40 hours of work a week for a company through November and December, and they'll just stop answering your calls about pay because they're going to pay you in January, but they need the work out of you, and they, but they're yeah. not going to pay you. And I had some really lean months, some really scary months. Um, yeah, it was a hot, it was a grind. It was a grind every day. Yeah, I remember when I first started just doing freelance work. I was still in college. I think I, I started doing freelance for other people. And yeah, those early clients were, it was, it was tough because one, they already, at least for me, they're like, we don't really take you seriously because you're not in design school. Like I was in school studying math. No one was looking at me, even though I had design stuff under my belt, people were like, eh, I don't know. And I would have, I mean, my clients, my early clients were rough, man. I had this one client who only wanted to pay me in like Sunday dinners uh, <laughs> because she didn't, she didn't really, it's not that she didn't believe in paying. She just preferred to pay in a non-monetary fashion. We'll just put it that okay. way. She was, she was like, you can, you can come over and, and, you know, I'll fix you a plate. And I'm like, that's not really, I mean, I, I have a meal plan at the calf. I can just get, you know, whatever, but, uh, and, and then even when I started my studio, like years and years later, uh, my first few clients I had would really be trying to stiff you on just the, the most minuscule amounts, like 200 bucks. Like, dude, it's $200 worth of work. Now, granted, I probably shouldn't have been doing that little amount of work, but I had just started my studio and I was hungry to just get like a few client names under my belt. Right. And it was just, it was, it was rough. I, I ended up landing into working on a political campaign, I'd say maybe about a year after. I started my studio, which really came at the right time because I was looking for jobs after <laughs> before that. I was like, this is not working out like <laughs> I thought it was. I had quit my job kind of in in protest, like Obama got elected. And I was like, yes, we can. And I already <laughs> hated the job that I was working at. And I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to put it out there and try to do it. And yeah, those first few months, really that first year was really rough. And my mom was sending money and she was like, you know, like you can put your pride to the side and just like get a job. And I was like, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I landed in this campaign and like it, it ended up working out from there. But those early, those early scrappy days, man, that something has to be said for just the, the time where you will just do any kind of work just to get. Oh the money, yeah. Oh you yeah. Know? Oh. And, and I mean, talk about like, like removing the ego. Like there was just so much time where, I mean, as designers, we're, we're essentially problem solvers, mm -hmm. right? So I will use my training and my skill set to come up with a solution. But so often, these people, they, they're bringing you a solution. And, and, it, and not only are they bringing you a solution, but in their mind, they've already solved the problem and they know how much that, that solution is worth. And so they're like, well, could you do this thing? I already have an idea of what it should look like. And I already have an idea of how much it should cost and how much. And because it only took me five minutes to come up with it, I think I should only give you $10. And there was just, yeah, I was just eating so much crow being like, no, that's, that's not the way to do it. That isn't, I can show you research. I can show you uh, best practices. I can show you examples. I can show they, they, they don't care. They're, yeah, clients, like, they're not looking know. at that. They don't care. No, and especially, <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, there's a ton of devaluing of design. Um, it's something that comes up all the time that, that as designers, we talk about all the time. But it's this idea that, that people think that it's just like a gut shot. It's just like, it's just all intuition. And they don't, 
it doesn't occur to them that there is research behind it, that there is method and and best practices. Yeah. And so there's a lot of notion of like, oh well, you know, my nephew or niece, like they're they like are good with colors, like that's what that means. You know what I mean? <laughs> like or their outfits always match or, yeah. or something like that. And so there's a lot of that that tug of war before as a designer you have like a realized sense of self a realized sense of realistic worth, worth of work, not worth of person. We're all yeah. worthless, like, or not worthless, priceless. We're all priceless. But a lot of that tug of war where you, you don't want to say no. Most of the clients that I did work for, I wouldn't do work for now. I It's just, oh, like, clearly the way you look at design and the way you look at solutions and, and, and what you want out of a designer is actually not what I provide. So uh, good, best of luck. I, I really... I wish the best for you, but we're just not made to work together. But back then it's like, all right, yeah, no, cool. Oh, only $10, like, or only Sunday dinner. Like, yeah, I'm not hype on it, but I got to eat. Yeah. I remember I heard from uh, a designer one time at a conference that I think it was something along the lines of what you were saying about kind of the speed it might take to do something. Like if you do a job and say, I don't know, if you can look at, at a job and say, I can do that in an hour. But the reason you can do it in an hour is because you spent five years learning how to do it in an hour right. so you're really paying for the years you're not paying for the hour right right i mean isn't and and company yeah go ahead no i'm saying companies look at at companies i think clients too they just look at the hours as if like that's the discrete amount like oh that's what the cost is well how many hours is that and it's like it doesn't it doesn't break down that discreetly that you can just take the cost and and chop it up in that way because it then commoditizes design to the point where you think, I guess anyone can do it, and it's not really the case. Right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I what is the is a, an old story? I don't know if it's even true or not, but about Picasso later in life having like uh, like a woman asked Picasso to draw something, and he yeah, he I've heard that do something yeah. very simple, and she's like, "It only took you five minutes." And he's like, "My dear, it took me my whole life." Yeah, I think that that there is real value to that. I mean, someone like Aaron Draplin, for instance, when, when he does a tutorial on how to do a logo in five minutes, Mm -hmm. I think that I feel like what he's trying to show is that anybody can learn to design. And I 100% believe that. I don't think that it takes inborn talent. I don't think it's inherent. I think that anybody can learn the the craft of successful design. hundred percent. I think though, that there are some spectators who see Aaron doing that, that think, Oh, well, I could do that in a dismissive way. Mm -hmm. You know, that the whole, like if my kid could draw this, then it's not art, that bullshit line. And so, you know, not, not to get in the weeds about this, but I think that, that people are, because it is an hourly charged thing so frequently there's a lot of people with a dubious attitude that, that are like trying without knowing what actually goes into it. They're trying to figure out how you as the designer, as the hired person are trying to pull one over on them. And they, they're kind of yeah. a place of mistrust. And that's why, like, I think it is important to, you know, when you're, you're, when you're specking out um, a, a project to put as much information in it as possible. Like, Oh, like first thing I'm going to do is like this many hours of research, but here's what I'll be researching. Here's what I'll be looking at. Here's how much time I spent putting together this, this brief and this outline, like, because it's, 
tough that so often as a designer, especially earlier on in your career, you have to be constantly defending the value of design constantly. Um, but that's part of design. Part being able to speak to your design, being able to to build the value into it and, and express the value. Unfortunately, it's just it's it's a part of the it's part of the game. Yeah, part of the game. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> now, aside from you know your design work, you also do some facilitation work with Frameshift Consulting. Um, I I learned about that because uh, at Glitch we had uh, Valerie Aurora. She gave an ally skills training uh, to us earlier this year. And then I was looking at the website. I was like, wait a minute, I know him. <laughs> how, did, how did you get started with them? Um, so uh, when I was at CoreOS, the uh, CTO, Brandon of CoreOS, is a great guy. And he had been, when he was going to Oregon, he was a Linux developer. And he met Valerie as one of his Linux mentors. She was a uh, developer for the Linux kernel, hmm. um, which for developers... <clears throat> Um, is a very impressive thing. And so at the same time, she was doing the ADA initiative. She was part of um, the geek feminism. Um, she was doing a lot. She was already doing advocacy work within her direct tech communities, really for women, femme identified, and queer people. And over time, she stopped, she stopped developing computer software and really focused her, her attention hundred percent into frameshift consulting and into this facilitation work. And so Brandon had her come and teach her ally skills class to our small company. And I got so much out of that workshop as, as, a, as an ally and as a member of a targeted group, it just, it was really clear. It was really concise. Um, and watching the discovery process, I'm, in a room of maybe 30 people, nearly every single one, nearly every single one, cis, straight, white man. But it's a volunteer-only program. So it's people who wanted actual skills to be better at advocating for people around them. This is the inclusion part. Here's the difference between diversity and inclusion. Inclusion um, is how we work to make ourselves and each other feel comfortable, invited, and welcome. And so... It was great seeing them actually learn these tools and myself as well, learn these tools. And I learned things about my own privilege and privileges that I didn't know before. And so after that workshop was through, she then came back and did a um, code of conduct development and enforcement workshop with us. And that was doing a lot of event work at the time. And so I got to work with her again. And then, um, she had announced that they, she was doing a train the trainers and core OS paid for me to go and get trained. And since then Valerie, and I have developed a friendship and a real great um, kind of idea sharing um, around this stuff. And so it wasn't long before it just made sense that I love the work so much. And it's so important to me that I just come on board with Frameshift and start um, facilitating the workshop on my own. Very nice. Which has been a really great experience. Yeah. Nice. And now also, I mean, aside from your design work, you're doing consultation, you are also helping out with the design community sort of in the Bay Area. Is that right? You're, you're co-leading or co-chair of a, of a group called Bay Area Black Designers, which uh, is founded by Kat Veo, so we've had on the show uh, before. How have you started to see the Bay Area kind of change in terms of the design community since you've been there? Um, it's really... It, 
it's changed quite a bit. One of the things that's interesting about the Bay Area, I think, I don't remember, maybe it was Mike Montero that I heard point out that in places like New York, design is its own community and its own industry. Whereas in the Bay Area, design is very much a niche of the tech industry and the tech community. So whatever we do is kind of predicated on, on tech and, and that style of innovation, which really, I think, changes a lot. Um, so right now, design is huge in the Bay Area. I would say it's primarily UX design. Um, they get paid the most and all like there are award-winning UX design teams at most of these major uh, tech companies. I'm seeing that design is being more readily accepted as a worthwhile thing. But again, it's got to be UX has a lot of quantifiable aspects to it, right? There's so much resourcing, get so much hard data back, um, whereas graphic design is much more nuanced. Um, and so the difference between a graphic designer and a UX designer in this town is probably about $80,000 annually. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Now, yeah, it's, it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I don't attach the word graphic <laughs> to my design title. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered the Bay Area Black Designers, which Kat had started about two years before I did, um, I was working at a, at a tech company. I was one of the only, if not the only black person there, I was the only black designer I knew. I did not know a single other black designer. And this was around the time of, I want to say it was pre-Ferguson, but it was the, the, the months, the year leading up to um, between Oscar Grant and Michael Brown, Oakland was was on the march. We were marching all the time. We were out in the streets. We were uh, being tear gassed by police, chased down. Like this was my reality after work. Wow. And the horrors that I was facing. And then I was going into work with these like 25 year old guys that just like, it was just across the Bay in San Francisco, but it was a world apart. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was incredibly isolating incredibly isolating and i remember one day i was just really really frustrated and i googled black designers bay area well thank goodness cat veos has her seo game on point because <laughs> it popped right up and uh you know a, a week later or two weeks later i was at my first meetup and you know was able to meet all these amazing black designers and what i noticed right away was none of us were from the bay area and it's grown from there. I mean, there's now on paper, there's around 400 members of the Bay Area Black Designers. And that coupled with the employee resource groups, a lot of the, the ERGs, uh, Autodesk, for instance, has a great um, black ERG. Salesforce's ERGs are unbelievable. They're, they're so well-funded, well-supported. Uh, you have people like Rachel Williams, who's just an amazing DNI leader. They get us all together in these rooms. I mean, gosh, we got to be in a room with Issa Rae and Ryan Coogler two weeks ago, thanks to Salesforce. And it's all of these um, black professionals in tech. Almost none of us are from the Bay Area, which tells me that we're still not supporting the area. And that's really important to me because a lot of the the older folks, my age and older, in BABD started as 
print designers and pure graphic design, typography, things like that, and have had a real haven't had the opportunity or the means to shift into digital design and are being left behind, which is a real tragedy. And so, I mean, even like Mike Nichols, who does Umber Magazine, which is a a blessing to our community. Shout out to Mike. Shout out to Mike all day. That itself is a tool for him to stay relevant and it's a tool for him to stay visible because otherwise, as as an analog illustrator and, and a typesetter, like, there's just not space for them. And so I am seeing more black faces in the crowd, but I'm not seeing more Oakland faces. I'm not seeing more San Francisco, Richmond, Vallejo, like the Bay Area isn't being represented. And that's that's terrifying to me because it's we're seeing an eradication and a replacement of entire communities at a scale which I've never seen before. Mm. So I would say that's how I'm seeing design change. But also there's a lot of design is so popular and there's a lot of self-aggrandizing self back padding that I see happening. I was, uh, I'm a member of the San Francisco AIGA um, and they did a mentorship program about two years ago. And I remember I signed on to be a mentee because, you know, I, I, I'm not done developing my career. I'm not done developing in my skill set. And I remember one of the mentor-mentee mixers talking with a guy who was probably, I would guess, 23 or 24, very cocky, very self-assured. And he was like, oh, I'm here as a mentor. I'm a mentor. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to begrudge anyone. I mean, there are brilliant, very, very young people everywhere. So it's not, it's not unreasonable to think that, that, this, that this guy could be a mentor. Yeah. But the way he was talking was just so cocky and self-assured. And then the more and more he talked, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a creative director. And I was like, gosh, like, wow, you're a creative director at your age. That's, that's really impressive. But then it turns out it's because his brother is the founder and CEO of the startup. <laughs> There's only six people at the startup. And this, this person is pole vaulting over a whole career path. I'm like, okay, well, where's your mentee? Oh, I don't know. I don't know where she is. Interesting. And she is just out of college. She's like 22. And she's looking for real development, real assistance, real anything. And this dude is not... I realized that he was much more into this idea, this persona of the designer, of the creative director. And in doing so, in my opinion, was doing this really great disservice to this woman of color who's just finished school, is a member of AIGA and is looking for development. And I, that I think for me was a very San Francisco moment where there are great swaths of people. I mean, of course there, there's incredible talent in this neighbor, this area. And I don't want to take away from that, but there are also a lot of people who think of designer as more of a lifestyle and are just getting in these rooms where they're just patting each other on the back and just being like, we're the best, we're the best, we're the best. And yeah. That's disheartening. <laughs> yeah. I see that a lot on, on Twitter, which is why I really am not on design Twitter a whole lot because I see so much of that, like designer as a lifestyle sort of thing where they're not really giving back to the community in any sort of way. They're just providing unnecessary snarky kind of con, you know, it, I, I, I see that a lot. Yeah. I see a lot of that. Oh, yeah, look, look at when any company rebrands. Suddenly, everybody is an expert in design, and it's just finding new snarky ways to 
to really devalue something that took years, right? Like, mm-hmm. like your hot take doesn't matter. Like there's a whole team. There's, you don't know what they were solving for. You don't know why they changed it. Like there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, and then also there's, like you said, giving back to the community. I remember I think about five years ago, there was a group of tech people who had moved to Oakland and they were like, you know, like, this is, I would say the era of like, like app building as a career. And they were like, we got to get together with the community of Oakland. We're the new people with the newcomers. We have to give back. And so we're going to, we're going to start meeting at city hall and we're going to develop things for the community. At that time that um, Oakland was uh, very, very black, very Brown um, and very white but also like very working class, very poor. Like there were a lot of struggling communities at that time that could have used a lot of help from people with, with means, with access, with money. What this group did was they developed an app to make it easier to call the police. Mm-hmm. Black folks don't need that. Yeah. Black folks in the projects don't need that. The, the Arab communities down in the acorn and lower bottoms, that's, that's, it couldn't be further from what they need. What these people did is they walked in and said, well, what do I see missing compared to what I'm used to? Oh, there's crime? Let's not like try to chip away at the systemic reasons why there may be crime. Let's just bring in the cops. And that, for me, like that's a problem. That's that's an uh, inherent misunderstanding um, of, of really what's at stake and what's going on. And it, it goes to show that like, your hot take, your your designer um, persona, and whatever, none of it matters if you're not solving real problems. <laughs> if you're not doing the research to find out what needs to be done, or listening, asking, you know, these, these hot takes on Twitter or, or you know, in other designer spaces, it just really tells me that you're just responding to your own ego. You're just responding to your own desires, your own way of life. And to me, that's the antithesis of design you know like for me as a designer my two greatest tools are empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. that's it without those two things i cannot be effective at my job because i'm never the demographic i'm never the person that i'm designing for it's always for somebody else and if i'm not spending time to learn what their challenges are and what their needs are it's moot i'm it's ineffective and so on Twitter, yeah, okay, like you go ahead, like talk all the shit that you want to talk, but like who are you actually helping? What are you actually who are you serving? Because if it's if it's just been like oh the the new Instagram logo is crap, like I I couldn't care less. <laughs> you know, like it's it's not, <laughs> it's not a it's not an opinion with any foundation and and it, and it's not useful. It's not useful critique. Yeah. So speaking of empathy and compassion, you're also the lead singer for a hardcore metal band. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention your music career. Talk to me about Mass Arrest. Okay. Mass Arrest is my Black Liberation hardcore band. Um, it's a political punk band um, with a very singular message, which is uh, really promoting the ideas of, of Black liberation, representation, and survival. And it's in a space, punk in general, hardcore punk in particular, which is the faster, harder, and more political wing of punk that 
started in the early 80s. It is very often very, very, very white. And I have been involved in it since I was 12 years old. Um, and I've been touring and playing in bands um, since then. And oftentimes I was hearing a lot of political rhetoric that was very vague. Like there's a lot of like, say, anti-police sentiment, but it's, you know, like, fuck the police because they won't let us break the law. And to me, like, they won't let us like drink on the streets or, or whatever thing like that. And I was like, but there's these people over here that are actually being killed, that are being, you know, murdered. Uh, that are being incarcerated, that are being unjustly persecuted. Can we, I mean, if we're going to talk about the police, can we talk about that rather than talking about them not letting us drink 40s on the sidewalk? And so there's a lot, a lot of what I learned about community building, a lot of what I learned about do-it-yourself culture, a lot of what I learned about self-advocacy, I learned through punk. And I mean, I never would have been able to travel to Europe when I was 19 had it not been touring with a band. I never would have like had friends and connections all over the world were it not for punk. I mean, this is really important skills came out of it. But what I was finding was what I was learning from punk wasn't being reflected within punk. And I was still feeling very left out and underrepresented. And so there are a few kind of single topic bands, shout out to Gloss from Olympia, who is a, a trans hardcore band. And the singer Sadie, she just made sure that everyone knew that this band, you're welcome to come to the show, you're welcome to party, but these songs are specifically for and about trans folks. And I was just really inspired by what they were able to do with their band. And so friends of mine were starting a band They who were white, friends of mine who were white, were starting a band, asked if I could sing for it. And I was like, okay, but it's going to be a black power band. <laughs> they were like, yeah, we know you. That's fine. You know, like we understand that, that that's what this is going to be about. So I just hit a point where I realized I had a platform where for years and years and years, I was being invited into rooms to sing at people, to talk about things. And I was talking about a lot of issues that weren't specific to my own experience. And so with this band, I made a really conscious decision to make sure that, you know, when we play, we were in Oklahoma City a couple weeks ago. Uh, we played in, in uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, Olympia, Washington. Like, oftentimes I'm in these majority white spaces. And so it's an opportunity for me to advocate for our people, to people who are interested in doing work for improvement and liberation for all people, but they just don't have access or knowledge of, they have plenty of access, but they don't have knowledge of the specific challenges that we're facing. And so mm -hmm. it's just more of that work. Now, between, between like your design work and the facilitation work and the community work and the music, like what's, what do you think helps fuel all these ambitions that you have, like where does that drive come from? Um, that's, that's a fair question. I mean, of course, I mean, you're probably one of the busiest people I've ever known, but, <laughs> I, but I bet you don't even think of yourself as being that busy, except in frustrating moments. Like for me, I feel driven because I think because of the punk, I think because of growing up poor, um, having to create a lot of a lot of the things that I wanted 
if I wanted something, I had to make it or I had to find someone who could make it or work with someone. Yeah. So that I think has driven me to, to want to create. But I also realized that I've had a lot of help through my career and through my life and that I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be anywhere. I probably wouldn't be around were it not for that. And I want to give back. I want to lift people up. I mean, that, that moment where I felt so isolated to be the only black designer I knew, I don't want anyone to feel like that. Yeah. So thankfully for me, Kat Veos had already put the work into creating the community. The least I can do is uphold and promote that, that community. Like, because honestly, I feel like if I'm not putting this time and this work into these things, then I won't get to have them in my life. Right. And it can be tough to be the only person of, of any targeted group, any marginalized group in a majority room. Right. Well, if I can do some work to help that room understand what this person is going through or how to advocate for this person, that means that eventually, ideally, I'll be in a room full of people that may not look like me, but can understand some of the challenges and concerns that I have. And can approach me with empathy and compassion and make my time easier. And so I guess in that sense, it's self-serving, but also it's appreciation as well. They say be the change that you want to see. And like, that's so real, even on the most granular level, like that is absolutely so real. And I think that we all have influence, small or large, and it was a big aha moment for me when I realized that and mass arrest is part of this, I realized that I had influence, I had a platform, but I was not, I wasn't taking ownership of it. And so all of this stuff is me taking ownership of whatever influence I have and whatever platform I have to make sure that I'm, I'm using it in a thoughtful way that ideally benefit my life and the lives of people I touch. Now, is there a, yeah, is there like a a dream project or anything that you'd really love to to do one day? Because I I agree with you in the sense that like I I feel the same way. Like you have to create the experiences or create the space for yourself, especially in this you know in this society that is continually trying to marginalize and push out and press out black people in general. I mean, people of color in general, but specifically black people. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be hard to kind of see where we are in the future, let alone in the present. Mm. So like, I feel like I, I get the sense of having to, to make that space. And I mean, we're, we're really, you know, fortunate that technology has kind of democratized creation in a way that allows us to do that. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many things I can do now that even just 10 years ago would have really been, I wouldn't say impossible, but it would have been a lot harder but technology has allowed me to kind of take different pieces from here and there and make the spaces that uh, that I need for whatever it is that I'm trying to do or trying to accomplish or trying to just put out there in the world. Yeah. So what's the question? Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I said it that I went on another tangent. No. Do you have a do you have a, a dream project that you'd love to, to do one day? Uh, I have so many. I mean, really. Uh, I'm a collaborator more than I am a creator. I I love, I really love working with people. And, and um, so I think of the people that I want to work with. And there's so many people right now that I really look up to 
Um, I mean, whether it be Issa Rae or whether it be Walter Hood, um, mm. brilliant Berkeley architect and designer, the opportunity to collaborate with people is something that really excites me and that I would like to do more of and let the project be just the, the product of that. I think that right now we're seeing a black renaissance in pop culture removed from hip hop, kind of like 90s black TV. I think we're seeing it like some of that in Hollywood. And so I would love the opportunity to work with some of these people that are making making the things that are enriching my life, whether it be, I mean, I know like <laughs> shout out to the homie Sinai. Uh, he's a designer, young dude, uh, young brother from West Oakland. He's like 22 years old. He has a brand called Maddow Future. And every time he puts something out, I buy it right away. Like he, he's hell of young and endlessly creative, endlessly talented. And if he called me up tomorrow and whatever the project, he was like, Hey, would you work with me on this? Like, yes, that's, that's what I want to do because I need to be inspired and and I want to just I want to be a part of of interesting things with interesting people. Now we're coming up on you know the end of a year. We're coming up on the end of a decade, really. When you look in the future, let's say it's it's twenty twenty five, which already seems like a long way away. But <laughs> what do you see yourself working on? Where would you like to be in the future? Um. Well, I mean, I like where I am. I really love the team that I'm on. Um, getting to work on some of the most interesting and cool projects that I've gotten to work on professionally. And so I really hope to continue to develop my career within that space, learning new tools. Um, I, like this is the year where I'm, I like motion graphics. I'm, I'm really, I'm all about it. I want to learn animation. I want to learn After Effects. Um, I want to learn 3D rendering. Um, my uh, anchor ball has been doing really interesting work around that. And then I don't know. I, I don't see myself in the Bay Area. It's untenable. It's getting too expensive. There's just too much greed from the property owners uh, taking too much money that they don't deserve. Um, I don't know where I will be. I see myself ideally doing more advocacy work, maybe a book and and just still designing and hopefully making cool stuff. All right. Sounds good. Well, just, you know, to kind of wrap things up here, I know you've been going for a while now, but uh, where can people find out more about you, about your work, about your music? Where can they find all of that online? Uh, the best place to find all of it would be my Instagram, which is resistance is brutal. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm Casey house, H O W S E. All right. Sounds good. Well, Kendall House, Boo Boo, man, it has been so good to talk with you. Uh, Always a pleasure, I, Maurice. I mean, I think just one, you know, hearing your story about the work that you're doing right now through Red Hat and even, you know, I can really feel the passion with your your advocacy work through facilitation and things like that. But also, you know, just this whole notion of making sure that we're using our creative talents for good things, to put good things out there in the world. That's something that I really walked away from this year's kind of black and design conference really kind of feeling like in my core, you know, like our creativity is going to be what saves us mm. like us as a people, us in the future, like that's how we're going to survive. And I really think that with the work that you're doing and, 
and uh, the spaces that you're helping to cultivate and create and everything that we will we'll make it happen. You're out there through your music, giving a voice to people. You're helping community through Bay Area Black Designers. You're, of course, working at Red Hat, doing all this great stuff. So I'm going to really be interested to see what you're doing in the next five years. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, brother. I, I always enjoy spending time with you and uh, I'm a big fan of the show. And so this is a great honor. Thank you. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kendall House and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kendall and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook Design and Abstract for being sponsors of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on social media as well. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.